Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today, we're going to be discussing the latest season of the absolutely stunning animated anthology series, Love, Death, and Robots, from series creator Tim Miller and executive producer David Fincher. It's on Netflix right now. This is a genre called adult animation, and it is, I would call it gleefully graphic. Uh, Just like the show, there is some very colorful language in this podcast episode, so you might want to consider that if you're listening around someone with sensitive ears. But I think it's appropriate because Love, Death, and Robots is certainly not for the squeamish. Joining us today is Tim Miller, who is the creator of the series as well as the showrunner, executive producer, co-writer of many of the episodes, and he directed Swarm, which is one of the episodes this season, and we'll talk about that in the conversation today. Tim has won two Emmy Awards for this series, and I wouldn't be surprised if he racks up a few more nominations with this latest season. And speaking of Emmy winners, we also welcome supervising director Jennifer Ya Nelson who directed the hilariously explicit Kill Teen Kill from this season. And she has two Emmy Awards herself for her work in past seasons of the show. And since we'll be discussing the incredible sound work on this show, the conversation wouldn't be complete without five-time Emmy winner and supervising sound editor Brad North, who sounds like he's having an absolute blast working with so many talented directors and such a variety of storytelling styles on this show. We've got a lot to cover in this episode. We talk about several of the episodes in depth in this conversation. So let's dive right in. Uh, First of all, I just wanted to thank the three of you for joining us today on the Dolby podcast to talk about love, death and robots. Um, I I normally don't do this, but I'm going to start with with not a question, but just an observation, which is I'm just so I'm I'm so happy that this show exists you know that there's that there's room in the world for this kind of content for this kind of program that you know um y- you know you're exploring different styles and each episode is as long as it needs to be they can be 5 minutes long they can be 25 minutes long it's just like i i'm so thrilled that there's room in the world for this kind of show to be out there and that somehow you managed to you know convince netflix to pay for it and and it looks like you convinced them to spend a lot so congratulations <laughs> to all of you for that Thank you. We're we're glad too that it, that it exists. It was it's been a long time coming um, for me anyway. In the animation industry, and I know for Jen too. Yeah, for everyone, because you know, if it's amazing that some show like this exists for you, think it, how it is for all of us of waiting for something like this to be able to make it. We haven't had that chance. I want to ask you, uh, just start with by asking you about the anthology format. I think, you know, the anthology, this is famously a genre that is not supposed to work in episodic television. I, you know, I grew up on Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, which was a show that I loved back in the day. And that got rebooted recently and didn't really seem to be a success. And even the reboots of Twilight Zone, so like it, just, it seems it's a problematic genre that, that everyone knows not to go anywhere. But somehow Love, Death and Robots, hugely successful dedicated fan following, critical success. How have you guys managed to make this work when so many others have failed, do you think? I, I can tell you that the, you know, the way the, the town works here in Hollywood, it's all about comps, right? When you go out and sell a project, if you're going to sell a sword and sandals movie or a show, they look at what's been done before and whether or not it was a success. And, and that was a major roadblock to, um, 
when the, the first incarnation of this, which was heavy metal, um, but still anthology. And, and there was really nothing that people could point to and say that had longevity, that had success, and it was anthology. And certainly nothing that was animated adult anthology. And so that fear of the unknown um, really, uh, I think, it kept the show from, or the movie at the time, from happening, despite, you know, for the first heavy metal, uh, when we went out and pitched it, we had David Fincher, Jim Cameron, uh, Zack Snyder, all directing short films in a $50 million heavy metal movie. And we couldn't get anybody interested. Hundreds of meetings. So it's crazy. But but I'll let Jen answer why she thinks it works now. I actually think it's it's basically really comes down to who's doing the shorts. There's been a lot of care trying to match make the shorts, the stories, and the directors and the studios. You've got a whole lifetime of of experience with um, people in studios that Tim have worked with at Blur, people that have been doing incredible content but maybe haven't had the opportunity to do a feature yet because of just the size and experimentalism of that particular place. And to be able to hook them up with really good, solid stories that they can put all their effort into making that actually great. Um, you're not spinning a lot of wheels here. You're doing amazing. Everything goes right to the screen. I'd love to kind of dig in, Jennifer, to what you're talking about a little bit more in terms of the development process. So, I mean, do you have stories and then you go out and find directors or direct, you go to directors and they pitch stories to you? Or how does this... How do, how do you get all these pots simmering at the same time? Well, all those stories, um, except for one this season, I believe one, Tim, um, uh, most of the stories are based off of short stories that Tim has read over the course of his life. I mean, Tim is a prolific reader. He sends over stacks of stories all the time, whether it's for the show or not, just says, read this, read that. This is amazing. And um, that sort of geek joy. Is, is sort of contagious and it comes through in the, the choice and roster of stories. And we just have a huge stack of them. And then we have a huge stack of really great studios and directors and they all have specializations and all these stories are different and you just do a lot of this. And maybe sometimes, especially in the beginning of the season when there's more stories to choose from, we can give directors and studios a choice and give, send them three or four and say, which one floats your boat? And some of them say, I really need to do this one. This one speaks to me. And then you funnel that passion into that particular story. I, I did feel too, like just to elaborate on that, they're coming from an industry uh, in, to do, that did a lot of game cinematics. That's what Blur does is these short movies for films. Um, we do a lot of that and we have for years. And if you look at the roster for Love, Death and Robots, it's almost all companies that were our competitors. Um, and and they had they did they did as good of work as better and they beat us all the time at jobs, but they were all around the world and doing this great work. But like us, they didn't they weren't big enough to do a, a, a feature film or they hadn't had the opportunity to to do that. And so it was just this really natural fit for us to say, look, you guys are doing beautiful work telling stories from three to you know twenty minutes. Let us give you a story that's not, you know, based on a game IP and and you put your directors on it and we'll help uh, where we can. And, and, it, and it was kind of like this little uh, production model was waiting 
there for us to use it. This machine just needed to be, you know, fed the right fuel mixture and off it went. So part of that obviously is you're matchmaking these different storytellers with the different studios. And so one of the things that comes out of that is just radically different visual styles for every one of the shows. So Brad, I'm kind of curious for you, you got photorealistic CG, you've got 2D cell animation, you've got just this incredible mixture of genres. You've got some really funny pieces, some really serious pieces. From a sound design perspective, you know, do you approach them? Is it this kind of a similar approach or do you actually change your approach based on the visual style of each individual uh, episode? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so when we have the photorealistic stuff, um, usually I'll get uh, some very large uh, sound designer to help me out. A lot of that times is uh, Craig Hennigan, who Tim uses on his features. I think Jen has as well. Uh, and Harry Cohen also. These guys really help out as far as... Um, you know, really fleshing it out and making it big and cinematic. And, and I think that that really helps with the photorealistic stuff. Um, they help out on other stuff, but I mean, I, I do kind of what, what they're talking about, which is I try to match some of my team with specific, uh, shorts and, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I'll just do it. Um, like, uh, you know, some of the, the comedy bits I'll, I'll do. Um, uh, I did a lot of them in the, in the first season. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of help mi mix and match some of the, uh, the sound designers and sound editors to kind of the style of the show. Um, but it all really depends on, on the short itself and the, and the filmmaker, because sometimes they, they need a lot of help on sound direction and some of them have exactly what they want. And um, I'm, I'm just there for support. So, um, you know, it, it, they're all different, you know. So the approach is, a di is different on, on all of them. For sure. So, Tim and Jennifer, uh, before we dive into um, kind of some specific episodes that I'd, I'd love to unpack a little bit, I'd love for you to talk about just what is your working relationship together? And Jennifer, if for maybe for the people in our audience who aren't familiar, what is this, the role of the, a supervising director? A supervising director's job is basically the, it's like the umbrella safety net um, creative for the show because um, day to day you're working with all these different directors and different studios and all have different strengths and weaknesses. And so my job is to make sure all of them are well fed and cared for and supported so that they can succeed. Um, some of them require storyboard help. Some of them require more writing help. Some of them require visual help and some need post help. All of them are different. Um, some need very little help at all. But my job is to make sure that everybody does their best work. Um, so it's part therapy, part creative. <laughs> and Tim and I work great together because he's super, he, he is, he is the overarching sort of creative backing for this show. But it's a, he, it's not, there's no way he's going to be sitting there and trying to go through every little minutia of day to day. It's just, he doesn't have the time. So um, I get the handoff. I feel like our whole production team, the role, because all of the directors and all these companies are so good at what they do. Um, and that includes uh, when it gets to sound uh, and composing, you know, Rob Cairns and Brad and his team, it, it's, 
it's we're we're really just there to help everybody, um, not necessarily have some hugely heavy hand on the tiller for every part of the process. But you know, the production team is kind of like a Swiss Army knife. And Jennifer, if let's say there's twelve blades and files and scissors, well, Jennifer is eight of them, and you know, I I try and be the other uh, four. And and so, but it's true that she she's uh, I, I just, I'm spinning a, f- a few other plates like I was doing Terminator at the end of that when we started up and Jennifer just gets everything uh, up on its feet um, and and make sure that the the trains run on time for sure um, and then every once in a while we'll be she's much nicer than me and but sometimes nice is not <laughs> is not what's needed and then she calls me in and I Oh, so you got a, you guys got a good cop bad cop thing going. I see. Yeah, I see Tim, how this works. Tim, Tim, go fuck some people up. And <laughs> not that she's not not that she's not capable of that because she, I wouldn't cross her. Um, I'll tell you that. But but um, but you know, it's a good. She is a, she is a, a much better mentor um, than I am. I I don't have the patience for it. I'm a dick. I think that's a actually very good point that a lot of the hope of this show is that we're we are sort of being support and mentors for really the next generation of filmmakers and so some of them are already i mean david fincher doesn't need any help in this regard but some of some of the directors maybe haven't done a large-scale feature before or anything like that and this is their way of doing some weird personal vision of something to show what they can do and um it's a real great um sort of a test bed for new talent i'm sorry there's just one more thing she she said jen said david fincher doesn't need any help but actually he did need help and because animation this was his first animated film so there's a lot of specific knowledge about animation that like jen did storyboards um for him because he doesn't usually do storyboards and I was second unit in mocap because I, you know, like to work with stunt guys and David doesn't. And, and so, you know, there's a, there's a, a process there that is sort of specific to animation and, and he just, it's not like he can't do it. He just hadn't done it. And so we help. I, I love what you're talking about. It's in terms of like, you meet the directors where they are and you sort of give them the support that they need to succeed. And, and I, I, I love like, as we were touching on earlier, this feels like a hugely expensive and big budget scale, you know, production, but at the same time, they're shorts. And so like for you, Tim, kind of being in this and in between, you know, Deadpool and and Terminator, this must be a little bit of a palate cleanser for you to kind of dive in and work on these things for a bit. Oh man, I can't tell you that the, the feature films are there. Look, they're amazing in many ways, but they're also like this are intellectual and creative desert because you're working on the same thing every day seven to and and if i'm in it you know so i'm thinking about it seven days a week 24 hours a day and and you know terminator is interesting but fuck you know after two years of it i'm ready to think about something else and and so and when and then and the politics of it too is just there's a lot more of it and then we get over to love death and robots and netflix really just gives us so much freedom to do what we want. And it's really like, if there's a discussion, it's between me and Jen uh, about, you know, a creative decision, nobody else is going to 
tell us what to do. Um, and I, I can't, I can't tell you how good that felt to just go, ah, oh, you know, we get to pick the stories and we get to approve the actors and we, you know, and it's just, it's great. And then, you know, you, 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 I try and bring that experience of like being fucked with, um, to, to, to not do that to everybody, to, to not do that to our directors, because it's hard for directors to be producers um, sometimes. But what Tim is talking about, I think, is actually one of the big reasons why the show can be weird. It hasn't been overcooked by a bunch of different steps. It is very pure. And so that's that's part of the personality of the show. I'm glad you said that because you got some weird episodes this season, which I want to dive into. But I, I, I want to start off not with one, not one, not one of the weird ones, but I, I want to start off by talking involved Halls Entombed, which I think is just such a, a stunning episode. And Brad, I really wanted to talk with you about this because I just love the sound design on this episode. It's a, uh, a special forces squad, which is on a hostage rescue mission, and they get trapped in a tomb containing an age old evil. I'm, I'm, crib, I'm cribbing some of this stuff from yeah. Netflix, their episode descriptions, which I thought were hilarious and spot on. But uh, they gave us a, a great clip to take a look at, uh, which... Um, which will 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 run. This is sort of the the first time that the creature is revealed in the vault, and it attacks them using sound. such a fantastic sound design opportunity for you. How did you create this and build this sort of very specific sonic environment where, you know, a lot of the plot is being driven by sound in this moment? Yeah. The, uh, the director was, was, uh, very helpful in this. Uh, I actually remember, uh, spotting this episode. Um, and he was very specific. Um, there was some stuff that was tempted in that was in the ballpark and, uh, Craig, Hennigan uh, and I just kind of fleshed it out a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's fertile uh, space for, for crazy sound design. So yeah, it's, it's almost like, you know, you take the handcuffs off and just kind of let sound just go for it. And uh, yeah, it turned out, I think it turned out pretty good. I think it, uh, it, it did narratively what it was supposed to do. You know, it's supposed to uh, be loud and and crippling and and uh, and even calling out as help. So they're they're kind of drawn to it as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy stuff. I mean, there's all sorts of you know tricks and and stuff that you uh, you do, and and we we uh, open it up on that one. Yeah, tell me about your what's what was uh, your favorite uh, sound moment to put together for this episode. Um, a couple of them. Uh, I really like the, uh, the little spider guys at the beginning. Um, that, that just looked great and it, and it, uh, turned out sounding pretty good too. I think, uh, it kind of, it matched exactly what it needed to do. Uh, and then of course, like the last, I don't know, third, 
it's uh, it's pretty fun. Um, you know, we got big and then small and then big and then small. Any any chance to use dynamics is my favorite thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, sound is up front on that. Uh, no place to hide on some of that stuff. So that's that's where we like to like to be. That one was was um, it happens often, but that one more than most was was really either succeeded or failed on the sound design because what was happening in the story was such a sound specific thing that, um, you know, this sort of psychic attack when the elder God kind of got into their brain, hopefully this idea came through, but, but before it was in the language of the elder gods and you couldn't understand it, but once it sort of went in and manipulated their minds, you could understand what it was saying and it could communicate to them. And the communication was, of course, release me. And, and Brad says that, you know, the temp was, um, was, uh, you know, working on some level. Jerome um, Chen, who's the director, been my friend for 30 years. We knew each other back in DC um, even. And, and so, uh, but for, for the longest time, that, that temp sound design, that, that monster's voice that drew them into the temple, or the prison um, wasn't there. And so it's, it's, it's kind of weird because I'm, I'm like, when are you going to put that in? Jerome's like, yeah, we're going to get to it. Don't worry about it. And, but it was funny when it, when he finally got a, a decent temp in there, the story kind of clicked in because it, it had been missing before that thing that drew them in. Um, and the release me thing never quite worked until Brad did it. So, <laughs> you know, Jerome thought it through. You know, that that's kind of sets us up for uh, for success is when the, the directors and the filmmakers actually think about sound ahead of time. And also while they're putting the cut together, um, they put specific sounds in and, and that helps us out. It's actually funny. They uh, they used a lot of uh, so, uh, sounds from Stranger Things, which is something that Craig and I did, too. So uh it's a pretty good fit to to call up Craig for some help. Um, so yeah, uh, but Jerome put us on the path. Definitely, it's funny. I mean, as much I I've done everything in the CG process to to some degree of uh, not greatness, but but I used to do animatics. Were my animatics were my favorite thing to do because that's kind of like mini directing. When you're putting the shots together and editing, and we would do all that temp sound track, and I, I I would get so excited when we got like we'd work on a game and they would leave us all these creature sounds and stuff like that. And I, I some of my happiest hours in the industry are putting sound temp sound on on animatics. It's just such a satisfying experience where you get that perfect sound that that matches the moment and. Um, Really, it just brings so much to the process, you know. Yeah, good sounds, you know, help out visuals and vice versa. You know, something sounds better as soon as it looks better. It's crazy, you know. When when we start working on the sound and we get, you know, some some rough VFX or or animatics and stuff, and we build the sound, we don't touch the sound. All of a sudden, we get final visual effects, and all of a sudden, it sounds better. So, there's definitely a, a marriage there. Some some director who I won't say did a movie and and for their director's cut they didn't put any temp track on their music uh, score and just limited sound design because they didn't I, I can't even remember what what wacky reason but I was just I was appalled 
I mean, I was just like, you're just fucking yourself by not doing that because because it really does. I, you could explain it with all the logic of, I don't want people to fall in love with a sound that's not there, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, you feel it. And, it, and if it's not there, you're not getting the same kind of emotional um, <clears throat> response that you, you want. It's like, it's like, you know, half your arsenal is missing in terms of communication with the audience and what you want them to feel. It's crazy. Well, and especially in animation, because you don't have any production track to fall back on. If you don't, you know, you, you need to have just a basic level of fleshing out the, <clears throat> the audio environment for you to even play. So I'm sure, I'm sure Brad, they're, they're, the, the picture teams are looking to you to throw them stuff as soon as you possibly can as they're going through their process. Yeah. On, on a lot of shows. Yeah. Um, because I, I work on a lot of VFX heavy shows. Um, we try to get ahead of some of that stuff. We, so we try to feed them, uh, some, some, some design that we're working on or, or whatever. Uh, this show is a little bit quicker. So, um, they can, they can call me up and, and I can give them something real quick. I think, uh, for Tim's, uh, episode for volume two, I think I did some sort of like vocal cleanup. Um, I think there was something that we did. Uh, well, we were, we recorded Stephen Pacey in, in his closet. Um, <laughs> yeah. Think, so I was trying to yeah, take the closet off thing? of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And then, um, one that we did this year, um, I was trying to, they, they sent it to me early. Um, a lot of the, the dialogue needed to be processed. So they asked me if it was clean enough. And then we started kind of messing around with the, the, uh, the processing of the dialogue. So, so yeah, it's, it's a little bit less on this show just because. Was that Night of the Mini Dead? I think what you're talking about was what we have to do for Kill Team Kill because all the actors are recorded in different places in their closets or in their home studios or something. And you had conversations with five actors and all of them were completely different sound quality, like totally different. All right. All right. All right. This is good. This is good. Let's, let's let's jump around a little bit. I want to talk about Kill Team Kill. Jennifer, this is your, this is your film. Uh, I, 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 love, I, I, I love, I love the, I love the Netflix blurb U S special forces meet their match in a cybernetic killing machine created by the CIA. Elaborate on what you're talking about. So you had to vocal, you had to voice record your actors. Everybody was at home during the pandemic, right? So they just went in yeah. their closet with a, did and you ship them some gear or were they like recording on their iPhones or what? How, how did it come together? Well, it was a bit of a mix because it was a bit of a hot mess for everyone. I'm sure because everyone's on lockdown and some people like, Joel McHale has his own home rig, but it's for a podcast. So he had a podcast set up, and it sounds like a podcast. Nothing wrong with it. It's just slightly different vocal quality than some of the other ones. And um, I think uh, um, Seth Green was recording in his closet with all his coats around him with his cat in a box because if the cat was outside, it would scratch at the door. And the cat was on the floor, and as long as the cat was asleep but not purring, it was okay. And then we literally was do, were doing all this kind of mixing and matching. Gabe Luna actually was able to go into a studio. So his vocal recordings were great, but we had to do it twice because the first one was done in one studio set up, another one that. And we sent that whole mess to Brad and said, Brad, what can we do? Can we, can we use this? Because most of it was ad-lib. Like, a lot of it had ad-lib all over it. 
And so they do it once, and they do it once perfectly. And if you ask them to repeat it, it's not as funny. And they're it's an ad they've done in a closet, so with a cat purring. So you gotta get Brad to help. And so he had to do all this. I think we only re-recorded uh, two or Joel. three Joel's was particularly lines. funky. Yeah. We got a great clip from uh, uh, Kill Team Kill, which is the the first reveal of uh, what do we call him, Project Bar Guest. I, I love that. That's great. Moose didn't do this. Sorry. Hey, hey, hey! It doesn't matter what did it. We're gonna get through this order. together. Together? I bet that'll look great on a poster with some puppies. <laughs> So Brad, what's, tell us about the sound design of this kind of crazy, immense creature uh, that you had to build for this. Yeah, um, there, there's uh, a lot of uh, monstery type of stuff. And then we also uh, put some mechanical stuff on top. You know, um, the, the formula was there. It was just kind of a, um, you know, a trial and error type of thing on, on what works and what doesn't. Um, overall it, it hit pretty quick. Uh, there was a couple of comedy beats that we had to redo. Uh, like what was it? He got hit and started running away. So we put like a puppy thing there. Uh, so a couple of those comedy beats, we, uh, we, we took another stab at. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's the, the big bears and, and, uh, pigs that you pitch down and, and metal ronking and all that sort of stuff. And, and you just kind of play around with it. And yeah. Jennifer, I wanted to ask you of all the stories, what made you decide this is the one that I want to direct. I just, I, I, I love, <laughs> I, I love this choice for you. I feel like you were sort of playing with kind of the stereotypical boy energy of these kind of war movies. I love it. You open it with like a character just whipping it out and urinating and splashing on the camera lens. Like it's, it's so subversive. I think if any, if whoever you would expect to have directed this had directed it, it just wouldn't be as surprising or funny. I mean, look at me. I'm not what you would expect to be directing this. Um, But I'm a huge fan of nineties action movies. And I grew up on all those, like, you know, guys roiding out and going out in the woods and shooting stuff and getting killed. I mean, that's kind of what the 90s were. Um, and so with that sort of uh, synth music in the background and, you know, they were just beautiful, poetic carnage films. And I loved it. And this seemed like tonally something that would allow you to go there. But the comedy allows you to push it way past appropriate, you know. So the comedy buys you the carnage. The comedy buys you the carnage. I think that's the sound bite. That's the sound bite for the episode for sure. Speaking of carnage, Brad, like, did you ever like this is this is by far and away a mile the most violent TV show I have ever watched in so many of the episodes, and especially yours, Jennifer. It's just so over the top. Like, did you ever pull back? Did you ever like, oh no, that's too far in terms of the gore and the the sound effects for the violence? I'll be honest with you. Usually we go for it and, and we have to be told to be pulled back. And I think Tim was one of the ones that was like, I was shocked on one of the ones that, that was like less score, less score. And it was uh snow in the desert last, last season. 
Uh, and it, there was a reason why is because that, uh, during the, uh, the scene, the shootout scene in the, uh, in the Valley was that these all like, there was a shot hit bang. They all had this pacing to it. So we didn't have to like push something to get it through. There wasn't, I mean, there was a lot of music, but the effects were sitting right on top. So it was, it was okay. So we probably had too much space, <laughs> Uh, for the gore because there was a lot of it so all we were trying to do was kind of match the visual and then uh, I think uh, Tim had a note on his first playback to pull some of that stuff down we pulled it down a little bit but not a ton he's like I think on the second one he's like no no no, no. let's pull it down a little bit but I mean it's obviously it's still there Uh, but yes there's a lot of gore Um, yeah for for uh, vaunted halls uh, for vaulted halls we there was a lot of gore in that as well, but it doesn't sit quite on top as, as uh, some of the other ones do. And that's simply because of the, the sonic space. Cause there's so much going on in that, that episode that you don't really have to make space for it. It just sits there and, and it just is part of the, uh, the landscape of the sound. There's no room for that juicy high end. Yeah, it, it's there. It's there. It's just not sitting on top because of, you know, creatures and gunshots and, and impacts and explosions and stuff. So, you know, it just it just kind of lives where it lives. So, Tim, you're up. Let's talk about Swarm. Uh, this is this is a story of two human scientists studying the secrets of an alien ancient entity. Uh, same similar question for you. What what drew you to that uh, particular story and made you say, like, uh, that's the one I want to do? Uh, you know, some of the stories that uh, I found last year or year before last. And some of the stories I found 20 years ago uh, and Swarm was one of those. I read uh, Bruce Sterling's, I had a big cyberpunk, um, you know, Neuromancer and Bruce's novel, Schismatrix. I went through quite a phase there. Uh, so I always love, I always love that story. It's a short story set in the universe of a novel. And <clears throat> so it was in the, it was in the, it was in the decks or it was up on the board from day one. And we just couldn't get, um, Bruce is notoriously um, uh, uh, hard to get a hold of, and he wouldn't even return our phone calls. And I had to, I had to ask Bruce uh, or William Gibson to say, you know, could you could you email Bruce? You're his friend, and tell him tell him we're not assholes, and I'm not a total dick, and I and I'm and I love sci-fi, and I'll be respectful. Um, but I. I just love the story and I hadn't seen anything. Um, Gravity was one of my favorite films when it came out and just the doing something entirely in zero G and I, and I get a big thrill out of where I feel like everybody is going to enjoy the character models are going to enjoy all the creatures um, and the animators are going to enjoy zero G. Brad is going to enjoy doing all the creature sounds and uh, in, in this really intricate sonic space that is the interior of an asteroid floating through space filled with alien life. Um, and so I kind of, you know, I get excited about, it's true of all the stories about, I get excited about everybody else getting excited. Um, but, but I really, I, I loved it. Um, I, I think maybe I loved the philosophical um, uh, argument of it a little too much. Maybe I, I, I kept, I had, I kept cutting back on, exposition and cutting back on exposition because the ideas are really great and they work fantastic in a short story, but less um, interesting in a, in a short film. Um, but that was a tricky one because I, 
<clears throat> I get really picky about dialogue. And, and like I said, I kept rewriting this dialogue to make it shorter. And so we recorded with Rosario and Jason Young, who were really great sports. And Fred Tattashore uh, is the alien um, creature. But um, they had to do it so many times in so many different environments with so many different setups. And I think probably the first time we sent them the gear and it was good. But, you know, the last few times it was probably like, just do something on your iPhone because I just need, you know, and, and, and as, as great as Brad's team is, I can still hear it. And, and, but I don't blame them in, it, because it's just like, what are you going to do? Uh, there's a couple, there's a couple of pieces of dialogue where, you know, it was just tricky. And Rosario was such a trooper because she would like shove all these almonds in her mouth and, and try and talk through them. So she's drooling on the microphone. And um, anyway, it was, uh, it was quite, it was quite, yeah. Sometimes the method gets in the way of the intelligibility. Yeah. You can go, you can go in a good way, but I was trying to ride that, um, that edge because, you know, she's really fucked up. So you didn't, you didn't want her. And Fincher had that same um, issue with, you know, we have no less than two um, humans puppeted by alien um, intelligences in our, in our show. And so he, he had that same problem. I just found the, the visual look of, of uh, swarm. So like I just, the first 30 seconds, my jaw was just hanging open. It was just so stunning to look at. Tell me a little bit about the, how you design the visual look of the, of the, of the short. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, uh, the, the original short, everything is dark inside the asteroid and they wear glasses, but immediately it seemed to us like an opportunity to do that sort of deep sea underwater, um, bioluminescent look everywhere to provide, light. And again, I, I was excited about the light, the lighting teams. I'm like, we can put fungus on the walls anywhere we want in different colors and it's bioluminescent and creatures can be bioluminescent. And I get really excited about that. Um, and, and designing um, these guys in China, Tianhua is the main designer. And we just did pages and pages of alien designs um, because it's cool and you can. Yeah. Um, and, and so we had a lot of fun designing, designing the world for sure. Yeah. Well, and Brad, obviously, you know, that influenced a lot of your sound design work because as, as Tim pointed out, it was a, like a fun challenge to do all the creatures in it, but it's also a very specific sonic environment as well. I was, it, it took me a second to kind of click in that like, oh, I feel like I'm listening to an underwater film. So can you talk about like how you arrived at that approach and sort of how that, why that made sense for this particular piece? Yeah, sure. Um, so that spotting session with Tim, uh, that was another one that we got Craig on. Um, that spotting session was one of the longer ones that we had uh, for for good reason. Um, we were trying to figure out like what section, what would this section sound like, like in the tunnels and then over here, when we see the the kind of workers, what it, what do they sound like? Not only just them specifically, but the the atmosphere, uh, and and how to sell that this is separate than this, and this is separate than this. And then you also have the different types of of uh, aliens as well. So yeah, there was a lot of a lot of fun things to to mess around with there. Um, it's really cool. This is one of those things that I wish that that we could we could share with the uh, with the world. Is like just I'd love for everyone to hear the uh, the background stem 
of uh, of the track. Um, it's crazy, crazy, crazy good. Um, now a lot of it gets lost because there's a lot of dialogue that sits on top, and there's a lot of music, and we have things whooshing by and all that. Um, but the the work that Craig put into just the atmospheres is insane. I, I was so impressed and, and it was exactly what Tim asked for and you can hear it. I mean, we try to hit the cuts on, on some of these bigger transitions. Like there's this one spot that I think is super, super cool. Cause we hear like, you know, the, the thick or organic organism stuff and you almost feel kind of the, the humidity in there. And then we see this shot where they're, they're kind of flying through this steam area. And we hit that thing with the steam and you can actually just kind of feel the difference. You can feel the kind of wet moisture in the shot before. And then in the next shot, you're getting blasted with this like steam. And I'm like, just with the, the backgrounds, if you could just hear that, you can actually feel it. It's the craziest thing. But yeah, that was, that was an awesome one. It was, there was a lot of inspiration pulled from, from all the stuff that Tim did. It, it was, like I said before, it, you know, a lot of it's there. We just have to kind of flesh it out. And, and it's in the story. So I'm just pulling from what Bruce wrote. But, but he's, it, it is a good point. And there's a, you know, when you listen to it in a proper room um, with the full Dolby, um, you know, all the bells and whistles. And I'm not just saying that to pimp you. Um, but it's, it's, it's true. Um it's the it's it's a whole it's a whole other level of experience and uh, the, the my uh, Craig knows this but the best most enjoyable viewing you know you have to watch your own movie over and over again but my favorite viewing of Terminator ever that I did was just Craig and I on the Fox Sound stage with the full Dolby surround sound um, in that big room fuck it's just so cool I wish the fans could actually go and see it in, you know, in some of these in theaters, when we, when we, uh, when we, did, we showed it at the Alamo draft house, it was, it was amazing. It sounded so good. So good. Well, I, I mean, I'll say like, I, I've got a pretty modest home, uh, Dolby Atmos set up just a, a, a sound bar, but you know, this episode sounds fantastic even through that, just, you know, that Brad, what you're talking about, like just the, the, the atmosphere, you know, just the, this, that sense of space and how you're kind of bouncing stuff off of, you know, in the overheads and just, you know, it, it really, it really centers you in that space and it's just a fantastic experience. So. Uh, yeah, good. Yeah. It's uh, like I said, the, the atmosphere is you can play up everywhere, right? Because that we feel like we're inside of something perfect, perfect for us. So we can, we can load up in the, in the tops and the, in the surrounds. Um, and I like it when we see the the kind of big, almost like the the factory machine looking thing that uh, you can actually play, like put it all on the front and then let the the atmospheres kind of play around you, and uh, yeah, you can play with the space quite a bit. That was uh, that was a cool spot. It's a great mix. Yeah. Oh, sure. cool. Thank you. Yeah, jo- Jody Angelis and Chris Carpenter, crazy good, crazy good. Those well, I can't do the show without those guys. Well, I, we're talking about sound. We got to talk about Hibaro for a second. So this is a deaf knight and a siren of myth become entwined in a deadly dance. What a tour de force for sound. You know, you've got the, the entire plot is centering around this not, deaf knight who is impervious to the, to the siren sound. 
I love the design work um, to communicate and establish the knight's kind of audio perspective and it's and his point of view because you don't go silent. You actually give us the experience of of kind of his limited hearing and what he's able to do. And then, of course, you do perspective shifts to what everybody else is experiencing. Like, this is a bonkers, crazy, busy mix, switching perspectives. And Brad, talk us through kind of constructing that and kind of navigating all that going on. Sure. Well, um, this is one of the ones where it's like the director knew exactly what was going on to the point where he did all of that stuff. He did, he did all of the, uh, the sound work. Um, I was there for support. Um, but he gave me all of his tracks. This guy has spent years on this thing. I'm not going to do anything to, to, you know, get it better or more of his vision. He spent the time and he did it and he did a wonderful job. So my job on that one was, was more of support. And, um, we, we hung his tracks and we did a pass and then we got in good shape. And then, uh, Alberto and, and, uh, Jen came in and it was good. It was in, it was in really good shape, but there was this like last minute thing. And I'm glad you're catching on to it because this is exactly where we spent the time at the last day, which was making the death perspective way more transitioning. Like it had to have a big jump because Alberto was very, very nervous that you, it wasn't landing that he was deaf and he couldn't really, he couldn't hear what was going on. And as you know, that's, that's an important thing to this. The so movie kind of doesn't work if you don't get that idea. Right. Sure. Yeah. And, and it was there, it was there. It just, uh, maybe it wasn't landing the way that he wanted it to land. So we did, that's where we spent the time on, on the dub stage. And, uh, it was good because I could, I could contribute uh, on that one. So, so yeah, we were we were able to uh, to kind of make this like deaf tone. It wasn't a separate tone. Uh, we we cut perspectives, hard cuts, as you were saying, hard cut perspectives go A and B and A and B, um, and we heard just a little bit, you know, some EQ, a little bit of a a little bit of a tone, but not much. So yeah. That that was that was a last minute thing uh, from Alberto. Like it was that was the thing that we had to land was that the world had to drop off on his perspective. So I'm glad you I'm glad you uh, you called that stuff out because that's where we spent the time. He actually took out some of the sound that had sound in it originally in the previous versions in that last session that Brad was talking about. He took it out whenever you were close to the um, knight's ears before there were a few that weren't like that. So he, he went for a certain level of consistency to help clarify it. That's interesting. So, and I, I'd, I'd love to, you know, Jennifer, this is, I think this is an example of what you were talking about, about like when you kind of would see a need and you kind of maybe stepped in and kind of get, gave some support to kind of clarify and, and, and help out, just make the, make the films as good as they could possibly be. Well, I think what Brad was talking about, though, is Alberto is definitely has a has a very clear idea of what he's going for, and a lot of the time it doesn't make any sense until you see it or hear it, and then you go, really. And, and some of the screaming and stuff. I mean, he got it on the stage with the choreographer or himself, like breathing into the mic and and all sorts of random things. And he said a lot of the armor was literally 
dropping coins in his place and literally like all very ghetto, but it's part of why it's, it's got that weird feeling to it. Alberto is one of those guys that we learned definitely on season one with the witness that at some point, Jennifer and I feel very responsible to, like we said, bring everything up to a certain level. But Alberto, he's like a fucking wild Mustang. You just, you just, at some point, you just got to get out of the way and go, uh, that's the producer director thing, right? You go, I would never do that, but, uh, but I believe that he's a genius and cause he is a fucking genius. And, and so I just go, okay, I, I don't quite get it what you're doing, but okay. Um, and so <clears throat> there's a lot of that with, with him. I mean, he, he wants to, it's, there's a collaboration for sure. He wants to, to have feedback and discussion, but he definitely has some very specific ideas and, and it's pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to, to, to move that train off the track um, if you, but luckily, you know, you're, you're going to Geniusville, so it's okay. Hey, I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a stunning episode. And I think from, amazing. A, a, from a sound design and a mixed perspective, it's really just, uh, just extraordinary work. So yeah, I, that's you know, congratulations. Alberto. That's Alberto. That's all yeah. him. We do um, we do this sneaky little thing uh, as we're going along making the show where we send to all the partner studios <clears throat> and artists, we send works in progress at specific times just so we can say, oh, look, somebody else is doing amazing shit. Um, perhaps, perhaps you should make your shit more amazing too. Um, not that they need to, but, you know, a little healthy peer pressure. Everybody, everybody thrives under a little competition. It's all, it's all good. Uh, it, it works for me. I look at that stuff. The Alberto's is one of those ones where you go, I, I don't, you know, if I worked a thousand years, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Um, I don't, I don't have the, I don't, ha- I don't have the, the requisite ocular and gray matter um, uh, material. I know we've only got you guys for a, a couple more minutes, but I do want to touch on Night of the Many Dead, which is just a wicked, wicked little uh, episode. Uh, it is, uh, as Netflix says, a night of unholy cemetery sex ends badly. Hello, zombies, not in our country. <laughs> Just the photographic technique on this was so bonkers. The tilt shift and the the, the miniatures and the undercranking. Tim and Jennifer, like, what? Can you just tell me a little bit about the the development of the visual style for this and 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 how how that was arrived at? This was the second of the of of that of that were original in that it was an idea that um, Jeff Fowler, who's the director of the Sonic movies, and I came up with for a, a video game uh, called Dead Rising, and we pitched them doing the zombie apocalypse and tilt shift. And we were so excited about this idea. And then the client said, mm. and, and so we filed it away, but, but it, it, it and it, and we had kind of worked out a, uh, when we blur at some point in the process, blur was going to do it itself. And, and I had this idea of like, well, let's just take uh, 
plate photography from, you know, drones or high altitude or whatever, clean the people out of it. And then, and then we'll add them back in. And I think they ended up doing a fair amount of CG sets as well as um, found footage, but that was kind of the premise, but just on the, on the nature of sound and then I'll shut up um, that it, it wasn't, I, I, it was done by the directors, uh, not a Brad's team necessarily, but I, I'm sure it got better But that, that piece really came alive when the buck guys put the sound in there um, with, the, with the people, the people, it just made it so much funnier than it was before. Um, there's so much comedy, even though you can't hear in but one line of dialogue. Uh, it's just exponentially more um, awesome when the, when they put that in there. Yeah, they're the ones that came up with that little chibi sounding little voices and um, the president saying his lines. They had a huge slew of all this backstories of all the characters that you're seeing and all the little things are going through in the zombie apocalypse that you're never going to see in the whole thing like the station wagon woman and the president and, and everybody. And the, and po- the, the Pope mobile, the Pope mobile with the little Cardinals. <laughs> yeah. They came up with some great stuff. And they also came up with the whole cemetery sex scene that you're talking about. Cause originally when it was developed uh, way back in the day, um, it started off with a cruise ship and you all know what happened with cruise ships recently. It's not really something we want to go back to. That was one that came, it came together so fast because um, at the end, Netflix, we, we asked if we could just like rush two more shorts into production. And we did Mason's Rats and, uh, and Night of the Mini Dead. And I was so glad. They were really late ads and, the, and the, all the, both production teams killed themselves. Um, and of course, all of that shit rolls downhill to Brad and his team. Um, <laughs> later on, but uh, I, I was so glad that we added those last two shorts. Yeah, uh, going back to Mini Dead. Um, so the, uh, the the guys printed out this whole thing, like Jim was talking about, which is like a backstory for all these these like characters. And uh, I queued it up for for our our uh, voice talent, and all I did there were no lines. I mean, there was a couple of lines, like just like, let's say these couple of lines and we'll see what happens. But it was mainly descriptions of who they want these people to be. And they're very, very detailed. Um, So we just played around with that and we recorded a ton of it. And then when we tried to get like real specific stuff, I had them record it at half speed. That way that you could actually find the detail because they're moving really fast. But if you slow it down, you can kind of pick in these couple of spots. And then when you play it back in real time, it actually has that natural. It has that naturally. So um, so we did that naturally. And then we also, when we did some wild stuff, we would we would pitch it up as well. But uh, I thought that was a that was a fun thing that we had uh, the voice talent to do was was actually See, this is fucked up. I. I didn't know Brad did that. I thought they did. I thought they did their scratch t- track. Well, and here it was Brad's genius. Behind no, don't it. give me the, the credit because because we just recorded it and, and sent it back to the guys, and then they cut it into the 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 cut. So when it got, but it sounds like some of those techniques were pretty key to making it work. Come on, Brad. No, 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 no. It was all there. I- They're not here. They'll never watch this show. <laughs> The the tech side of it was my idea, but it, the the general stuff the 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 ideas were not mine. 
uh, we sent it to them and they cut it in and it was great. And I didn't touch it after they turned but it Tim's, back over to me. Tim's point is well taken, which was like, that's what made the thing really crazy funny was those voices and just like, just. That's you know, all what them. A, what a, that's what all a, them. What a treat. Yeah. Cause if we didn't record it at half speed, we would have pitched it up anyways. So, uh, but yeah. But it might, but it's great that you can hear the president yes. say not in our not country. In our country. And, yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just we had crazy. a good time. We had a good time at that session. Those guys, uh, we we found some pretty funny people, so it was a it was a good mix. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. That was uh, one of the last ones that we did. As as Tim said, we just kind of threw that one in, uh, and I think that kind of the frantic feel of it kind of translated into the show <laughs> somehow. Like because I I I cut that in a couple of days and it. I don't know. I think kind of the frantic pace of that very last episode kind of helped out. And yeah, it turned out good. It's <laughs> great. It's yeah. great. Well, Jennifer, Tim, Brad, thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to us today about the uh, uh, third batch of episodes for Love, Death and Robots. It was such a treat to watch this show and congratulations on putting this together. It's really, It's really an amazing achievement. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Glenn. Many thanks to Tim, Jennifer, and Brad for joining us today. And extra special thanks to our friends at Netflix for helping us put this conversation together. Be sure to check out Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix. It is streaming there right now in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, and it is stunning. You can find a link to the show as always in our show notes, so you can instantly add it to your list directly within your Netflix subscription. Speaking of subscriptions, please make sure to subscribe to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms and our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to be taking a short break as we work on some ambitious new episodes of Sound and Image Lab, but we will be back in a few weeks with some of our biggest episodes yet. So please make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a thing. Until then, Thanks again for joining us. Sound and Image Lab is brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thanks again for listening.